Good morning, River West. I am also glad to see you today. And I'm especially glad to open the scriptures. Hope you are too. Pull out your Bible, please. If you have your Bible, open with me to the book of Romans, chapter 3. We titled our series in Romans, The Beautiful Disruption, because that is a phrase that describes the way that God often works in our world and in our hearts through the message of the gospel. He steps into our lives with the power of the good news of Jesus, and he disrupts us in some really beautiful ways. He did it in the life of the Apostle Paul. You remember that? At the very beginning of our series, I told you how Jesus disrupted Paul, and it was incredibly beautiful. Maybe the most beautiful thing that could have happened to Paul, who was on his way to a town called Damascus to murder Christians, and Jesus disrupted him with the message of his full identity. And in the disrupting of Paul, we got the book of Romans. And what I shared with you at the early stages of our series is that every generation since this book was written, every generation who's read Romans, studied Romans, or preached through Romans has been disrupted in some really precious ways through the message of this book, including our own church over the last few months. So if you found at times that you're uncomfortable as you sit through the sermon, can I remind you that's not necessarily a sign that something's wrong. That actually could be a sign that the preacher's doing his job, opening the scriptures to disrupt people with the message of Jesus. If I'm always comfortable in church, something's really wrong. <laughs> Something's wrong. And as we head towards Easter, I trust that your heart and your prayers are for people in your life that need to be disrupted by Jesus, and you're planning to invite them to join us. By the way, I want to tell you one other way that you can serve on, on Good Friday and Easter. We need a little bit more help in our children's ministry. Pastor Kathleen has let me know that we still need four leaders for the 6.30 Good Friday service, and you need to already be background checked. Um, we, we don't allow anyone in our church to work with kids unless they've gone through a rigorous background check process, but we need four of you background check folks to serve at Good Friday, and then we need two leaders for the 10 a.m., and we need three leaders for that noon service, so we'd love to have you serve on Easter. Just let Kathleen know, reach out to her, tell her you're glad to serve. Another thing we're doing on Easter Sunday this year for the first time, we're going to reserve the front row out there of our parking spots for visitors, and so invite a friend. They'll have a place to park at that 10 a.m. In fact, if you come to that 10 or that noon, you might consider parking. I, I like to say park far and sit near, all right? Park far away and then sit up front because new people like to sit in the back, okay? Okay, and, and introverts. I see you back there, introverts. But anyway, okay. All right, get your Bible out, Romans 3. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna share with you a sentence that I shared in week two of our Roman study. It's a critical reminder about the purpose of this book that we can often forget as we move through all of the rich, deep theology of Romans, if we're not careful, we can forget the purpose of the book. And here's the sentence. I wonder if you remember this. The book of Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to a community of believers who were dealing with tension in their church over ethnic and religious differences. 
That's why Paul wrote Romans. He wrote Romans as a pastor. He wrote Romans as a church planter. He wrote Romans as a Christian leader who cared about the conditions of local churches in the city of Rome. And all of the rich theology and all of the doctrine was being used by Paul to address a very real practical need that was happening in the church. Romans was not a theological treatise. It was not Paul's attempt at a systematic theology where Paul, some people think, they think of Romans, they think Paul tried to write down everything about Christian doctrine and it didn't matter where he sent it. He pulled out a map, covered his eyes. Rome, I'll send it to Rome. Okay, this is not Romans. Romans is a letter addressed to real people dealing with a real issue. If you went to your mailbox tomorrow and there was a letter from me in that mailbox, and at the beginning of that letter, I front-loaded it with some Christian theology, you would assume that I was moving towards a practical purpose, right? Adam's writing me. Oh, he's talking about theology. So let's say you're a young man, you've just started a dating relationship with a young woman, and you get a letter from me, and at the beginning of the letter, I develop the Christian theology of marriage and sexuality and, and why marriage should be saved for sex, and then you would know what's coming, right, as a young man. you know, okay, he's getting to the point where he's going to say, cool the engines, dude, all right, cool the engines, that's what I'm doing. Or if you were a, if you were a community group that was fighting and you got a letter from me and I front-loaded that letter with all of the theology about patience and forbearance and community, you would know Pastor Adam is writing to address a real thing we're dealing with. And Paul wrote Romans to address an issue in the Roman churches. But if you picked up Romans and you just read what we've read so far, let me ask you a question. Would you assume that Paul was moving towards dealing with the issue of ethnic tension in the church? Would you assume that? The Romans would. When that church gathered that first Sunday and they heard Romans being read, they knew exactly where Paul was going because this was the elephant in the room. There they were with all of their differences, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, Christians who spoke different languages, Christians with different colors of skin, sitting together in a church trying to figure out how to do community together, and they had been fighting. And then they read the book of Romans, and they knew, I know where Paul's going. So we look at it now, because Paul comes back to the theme. Verse 27, chapter 3. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, I'll confess to you that for the longest time, I read that passage 
coming off of the, of the passage we studied last week, where all, it's all the rich theology of justification and redemption, all these amazing words, propitiation, and that seems like it's the most important thing. And then you get to verse 27, and I'll be honest with you, for many years I thought, this is just kind of Paul dealing with some leftovers, you know, a little bit of tidbit there, tidbit there. He's, it's, he's kind of, he's rambling on now, and it's time to land the plane, Paul, right? But that's actually what Paul's doing now is Paul is actually come back to the whole purpose for writing in the first place. Remember when I told you early on in the series that Romans was written after a season in, the, in Rome where all of the Jews had been expelled from Rome. Do you remember this little history lesson? You'll want to go back. It's in the early weeks. Claudius, the emperor of Rome, expelled all the Jews because of a fight that had broken out in their community. So all of the Jews had to leave Rome. You can read about this in Acts 18, verses 1 and 2, including the Jewish Christians. They left Rome, and they were gone for five years And then when they came back, the church was different. When they left, it was a church that was primarily Jewish in culture and style. The Jewish Christians were often the first ones to come to Christ, and then Gentiles would come to Christ later. So Gentiles would join a church that had Jewish ethnic sensibilities. It was their kind of worship, their kind of teaching, their kind of culture, their kind of food. Now the Jewish Christians are gone for five years. And the Gentiles carry on. They run the church. Imagine what it would have been like for these Jewish Christians to come back to a church that now is very Gentile in nature. The pastor preaches like a Gentile. The pastor dresses like a Gentile. There's Gentile food at the potluck. They're clapping on two and four. They used to be clapping on one and three. I don't know. Okay, whatever. The point is, the church is different. The Jewish Christians come back And they don't like the changes. And they start having conflict with each other. Now, sometimes it's hard for us, let me just in a moment of sheer honesty to all of you folks who are part of the majority culture in our church, those of us who are white, it's hard for us to understand what this would be like. Because we are so accustomed to our culture, we cannot even fathom that it's actually a culture, <laughs> okay? But I can guarantee you that our precious brothers and sisters in our church of color know what our culture is, okay? So imagine if for a season, all of the white people in this metroplex of Portland left for five years, and our precious brothers and sisters of color ran the church, and then we re-entered, we would find a church that was very different. And it might actually be really beautiful in some different ways, but some of us might not like all those changes, right? And here's the thing. Paul did not say to the Romans, it would be easier for you to just create two satellite campuses, okay? A very modern idea. All of you Jewish Christians, go over here, have your satellite campus, and eat your food, clap on one and three. All of you Gentile Christians, clap on two and four over here. Paul didn't do that. Why? Because Paul believed that the gospel had the power to breach differences of all kinds. Ethnic, cultural, political, style, preferences, none of those things are more important than the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ, of every tribe, tongue, nation, and color. Amen? Amen. Amen.
I like this already. Keep that coming. Okay, here we go. I wasn't even planning to preach there, but it happened. So why does Paul talk about boasting then? Look at that. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Well, Paul was dealing with an ethnocentric boasting. There was an ethnocentric kind of a boasting happening. And it's hard for us in our culture to read texts about boasting. Boasting was a very common thing in Greco-Roman culture. You would boast publicly. You would use boasting to advance yourself in society. You would boast about all things, your skin color. You would boast about your tribe. You'd boast about your religion. But we, you know, we're in our modern Western sensibilities. We know that boasting is not cool, all right? But that doesn't mean we don't boast, right? What we do is we invent technologies to do the boasting for us, okay? Instagram and a little thing I like to call the TikTok. The TikTok where people dance for hundreds of people. Like, what? Can you imagine being an alien species looking at a TikTok? You would say we can easily defeat these people and take their planet, okay? <laughs> or we've invented what's called the humble brag. You know the humble brag? Where you s- pretend to self-deprecate in a way that actually makes you look awesome. I'm so tired of people hitting on me all the time. It's exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting being an influencer. I have so many followers. I have to constantly put out content. The humble brag. So we don't boast overtly, but that doesn't mean we don't boast or brag. There's three things that Paul wants us to understand about boasting. I'll ask you to write these down. There's three things we need to understand. Number one, boasting is problematic because it is an external form of an internal condition that we call pride. That's why Paul's concerned. Because pride's on the inside and he knows it. And and boasting is just pride coming out. That's what boasting is. C.S. Lewis called pride the essential vice. He said pride, if you think about it, of all the other vices, anger, greed, selfishness, self-promotion, of all those, the one that's underneath them that often motivates all of them is pride. Isn't that interesting? He wrote a whole chapter on pride that he called The Great Sin. And I love the intro. Just listen to this. He says, today I come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no person in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. I love C.S. Lewis so much. You're thinking, why is this guy quote from C.S. Lewis so much? You're asking the wrong question. Why don't you quote from C.S. Lewis <laughs> more? Okay, because I'm going to quote from him again in just a minute. 
We loathe it in others because we know it's in us. And how does it come out? It comes out in the way we boast, in the way we brag. I love that. You can boast about just about anything. And it can be very subtle. Am I always name dropping in public? Talking about how many people I know? That's probably the pride of social importance. Do I always have to win every argument or assert myself that could be the pride of self-righteousness? In social settings, do I want to make sure people know how well-read I am or educated? That's probably the, the pride of intellectualism or educationalism. One time, I, when I was a young man, I, I decided to take a whole day where I would fast from using words, okay? You might try this someday. It's an incredible experiment. What I did is I, I'd, been re, I'd been practicing some of the spiritual practices in Scripture, and I got to the one on fasting and realized you, most of the time you fast from food, but you can fast from other things that you realize you're overusing or overdepending on. And sometimes we overdepend on words. And so I took a whole day where I didn't speak. I had a little three by five card that said, I'm not talking today. So I could, I could go into places and explain to people. I hold up my little card, okay. Yeah, because it doesn't, if you stay home all day, what's the point, right? Unless you talk to yourself a lot. But there I'm in, I'm out in public. And I got to the end of the day and I, I was shocked to realize I, most of the words that come out of my mouth are used to promote myself, to defend myself, to justify myself, to assert myself, to make sure people know how important I am. (laughs) It was disorienting. Paul talked about boasting. Remember Philippians 3 where he says, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, I have more. I assure you, I could be more confident than anyone I was circumcised on the eighth day, that's religious pride, of the people of Israel, that's ethnic pride, of the tribe of Benjamin, that's familial heritage pride, a Hebrew of Hebrews, ethnic pride, religious pride, as to the law, a Pharisee, self-righteous pride, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, Paul was really good at his job, okay? (laughs) Job pride as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And Paul probably could have gone on and on. And you realize, boasting is just pride coming out. It's really interesting, later on in that passage, you read it, Paul says, but you know what I discovered? He said, once I found Jesus, I realized all that stuff that I cared about. He uses this great Greek word, he said, it's scubula, okay? And don't think like a scooby snack, okay? The scubula is actually, it's the Greek word for poo-poo, okay? That's what it means. It means, Paul said, all that stuff that I care about, my heritage, my ethnicity, my education, my zeal, you know what that stuff is worth to me now that I have Jesus? It's just a big pile of scubula. Amazing. What you boast in is the thing you're looking to to give you confidence 
to face the day. What you boast in is the thing that you look to to justify your existence. It's the thing that you depend on for your sense of worth or identity in this world. And so pay attention to it. That's why Paul's going to talk about justification. Do you notice? What I boast in is the thing that I'm looking to to justify my existence in this world. And Paul just wrote a whole paragraph on justification by faith alone in Christ. Critical. Here's the second thing we need to know about boasting. Boasting harms community. Because it involves comparing yourself or your group favorably over another. Boasting requires comparisons, right? We, when we boast or when we experience pride, that pride, that pride is rooted in a competitive nature. C.S. Lewis talked about this as well. I love this. He said, the essence of pride is competition. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the other man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If every one of us became equally rich or clever or good looking, there'd be nothing to be proud of, right? It's always about... It's not, it's not enough just to have a really immaculate lawn, which I have, okay? The point is, is my lawn better than my neighbor's? That's what makes me feel proud, right? It's not enough for you to be good at your job. Where the pride comes in is when you want to make sure you're better at your job than the next person. It's not enough that your kids are well-behaved. In fact, sometimes they can only be marginally well-behaved, but as long as they're better behaved than your friend's kids, you can take pride in that. Even we pastors, okay? It's not enough to stand up and honor Jesus through a sermon. I want to feel like I'm better than another pastor. I remember one time in a, being in a pastor's kind of a meeting. There's a bunch of senior pastors from the city, and we were all there. And we're not just always praying, okay? Sometimes we banter and we pick on each other, and it gets fun. And it gets a little bit, you know, we jab at each other. And I remember this one pastor, these two guys were sort of going at it. And this one pastor was like, hey, is your wife still tuning in to listen to my sermons online? You know? (laughs) And the guy, the other guy was fast. He was like, yeah, she's tuning in to tell me how not to preach next Sunday. Okay. (laughs) And I'm sitting there thinking I'm so much better pastor than all these guys because they're so arrogant. Right. (laughs) So you can always find something to boast in. Am I right? And it's tribal. It's tribal. We boast in our political group. We boast in our social group. We boast in our football team, right? We know who wins that debate. No, I'm not going to go. And even when, you're, even when your foot- football team is bad, okay, as long as they beat your rival, okay, and even if they don't beat your rival, you find another thing to be proud about, okay? I remember one time after an Oregon State, Oregon football game where Oregon won, I was walking in and this Oregon State fan came up and he was like, hey, what's the one thing that Oregon State fans have in common with Oregon fans? And I said, I don't know what. And he said, neither of them attended the University of Oregon. Okay, anyway, (laughs) we we can boast about anything, right? In Rome, the Jewish Christians were boasting 
in their ethnic and religious privileges as the chosen people of God. They were boasting about that. And they were looking down on their Gentile brothers and sisters. It's what you might call ethnocentric pride. We know this is what Paul was dealing with because he immediately moves from boasting to a point about Jews and Gentiles. Did you see that? Look at it, verse 29. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. So what we miss in, as modern readers, this, those two verses are laced with heavily charged racial rhetoric. Circumcised and uncircumcised was, was used, the, the, the Jews took those two terms and they used it to divide the world into two groups. And the word uncircumcised was used by the Jewish people in a very derogatory way, almost like an ethnic slur. Even that word Gentile, you see that word Gentile in verse 29? That word in the Greek is the word ethne. It's the word from which we get our English word ethnicities. The Jewish people, because they saw themselves as God's chosen, and they were God's chosen, but they were chosen to be a blessing to the nations. But over the course of their history, they turned that privilege inward, and they used it to look down on the people groups around them, and they came up with a word Gentile or ethne, to describe all those other nations. And even that word, Gentile, became for them a derogatory racial slur. So fascinating. And it's hard for us because when we're, we're here now in the 20th century and it's really difficult for us to get inside of their world to feel how heavily charged this was. We have ethnic tension in our world this was like deep ethnic tension. There were sayings that would go around in the, in the world of, of the Jewish people that God created Gentiles to be fuel for the fires of hell. That's how they thought of Gentiles. And lest you think it didn't go both ways, the Gentiles looked down on the Jews and referred to them as subhuman. So it was charged and deep. And they could have divided but Paul said, don't divide. Now that you've all become Christians, the vision of the gospel is that you unite together into a family of faith. Sometimes in our culture, it's hard for us to think or become aware of the ways that we look down on other ethnicities. Because sometimes it's, it's subtle, you know. We don't, a lot of times we don't overtly boast about our people group or our culture or our, or our skin color. But it can come through in ways we're not even aware that it's coming through. We just take things for granted and assume that any other way to do it is wrong or somehow flawed. But people who are part of minority cultures can feel that more often than we realize. So there's something really beautiful to in God's grace, seeking to become aware of it. Here's the third thing you need to know. 
about boasting. Boasting is actually impossible for a community that understands justification by faith alone. I did not say that it does not happen in churches. And I also didn't say that it doesn't happen in the lives of individual Christians. It does. But if there was boasting that was going on that was sort of systemic, a regular thing, what it would reveal is that that individual or that church community has actually not fully embraced the doctrine of justification by faith. Because if they had, they would never boast in anything except for Christ alone. Amen? I mean, what else would you boast in? Paul said, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me. So the fact that we do boast reveals not just that we're bad people, but that we need to take a gospel doctrine and we need to press it deeper in. Listen to the logic of Paul, verse 27. Notice what he does. What becomes of our boasting? It's excluded by what kind of law? Paul's saying, should we not boast because there's a law in the Old Testament? Thou shalt not boast. And Paul says, no, that's not even the real reason not to boast. The real reason not to boast is not some law in the Old Testament. The real reason not to boast is the principle of faith. He said it's excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then he immediately applies that to Jew and Gentile. So here's what I need you to do. Just think with me for just a minute. Paul believed that the very first application of justification by faith is actually unity across differences in the church. Isn't that interesting? He said, I'm not, just, I'm not just teaching you justification by faith so that you can apply it as an individual to your own individual salvation, although it's certainly that. Paul said, the point of the power of the doctrine is that it should radically transform your community. Where you stop boasting, you stop taking things for granted. You stop thinking about your own group, your own culture, your own tribe. And you recognize the beauty of all of the different kinds of people groups that God has grafted into his church family. And he did it through the power of the gospel, justification by faith. This is so profound. I've spent a lot of time reflecting as a pastor on the last two years in our culture. I've spent a lot of time thinking about a lot of things. One of the things I've thought a lot about is the conversation that happened in our society around race and ethnic divisions and how, and the ways in which that conversation happened also in the church. And I just want to share a couple of my observations with you. The first observation is that I'm, I'm really hoping and praying that in general it's been good to have that conversation. I think in a lot of ways it has. But one of the things that I noticed in the way that conversation would go down 
is that it was often totally devoid of the gospel. On both sides of the spectrum. So we would be having conversations out there, online, in the media, on the news channels. And a lot of those conversations would devolve into defensiveness and name-calling and accusations and fighting and lobbing ideas back and forth. And I was reflecting on the fact, and I'm not, I've not, I'm, I'm not even remotely the first person that's ever observed this, but in the civil rights movement in the 60s, one of the things that was different about that conversation was that all of the leaders of the civil rights movement were using gospel doctrine, gospel truth. They were saying there's a, there's a biblical reason why it matters that we treat one another well in diff- our different ethnic groups. And the reason comes from the heart of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And so to have the conversation without starting here is very rarely going to lead to actual reconciliation. But if we were to have the conversation by starting here, think of the immense change we could create as a family of faith. Family faith. I remember hearing people say, the only reason churches are talking about racism is because of something political, leftism or wokeism or something like that. And I remember thinking, no, the reason to talk about racism is because you can't read a single letter that Paul wrote where he does not apply the gospel to ethnic tension. Not one. So if you go to a church where the pastor never talks about ethnic tension that church is not preaching through the Bible. And I also notice that people come to the conversation kind of freaked out. You look freaked out right now, okay? Just everyone take a deep breath. We come to the conversation with filters up that we don't even know how we got them. Political filters, ideological filters, And sometimes it's hard to open the Bible even and talk about a really critical issue because we're hearing it through all these filters. And so my heart as a pastor is to say, hey, let's just take a deep breath here. Let's open the Bible. Let's see what Paul thought about these things. Did you know that every single church that Paul planted was multi-ethnic? Every single one. There were Jewish Christians, There were Gentile Christians, which means Christians from Africa, Christians from Arabia, Christians from from parts of Turkey. There were all of these different skin colors, multiple languages, and then you study the scriptures and you realize that the Bible ends, the book of Revelation, with the blood-bought people of the Lamb from every tribe, tongue, nation, and culture worshiping Jesus together in unity. And that's why I want to talk about it. That's why I want to talk about it. The faithful church who loves Jesus, who believes the gospel, we will extend great effort to make it easy for people from different social groups and ethnic groups 
to worship in our church. We'll extend great effort to make it easy for them to feel welcome here. And we'll listen to them. We'll ask them, hey, what's it like for you to come and sit in our church? How does it make you feel? What could we do to make you feel more welcome? Cultivating an atmosphere within our church that welcomes social and ethnic diversity, it's often very hard, it's complex, takes a lot of sacrifice. But then I think about Jesus. The difference between me and Jesus was vast. Think how far he was willing to come to meet me, to bring me in. It cost him dearly. It cost him his blood. And that's why Paul wrote Romans 3. Amen? Man, will you bow your heads with me and we'll, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna have the worship team come forward. Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much for the power of your word. It is so beautiful. The doctrine is rich. Justification by faith alone. Yes, redemption in Christ. The shedding of Jesus' blood to pay for sin, propitiation. It's beautiful. And then to turn to the next paragraph and see the way that Paul took all of that truth and used it to encourage the church of Jesus Christ to stay united, even in our differences. And how we want to pray for that in our own church, Lord. Shape us, change us, disrupt us. I pray for sophistication and the way we think, the way we talk. I pray we would be really good listeners. We would listen to one another, care about one another. I pray that we would notice those in our church who might feel like they're a little bit out of place and go out of our way to make them feel welcome. How we long for that, Lord. Not for our own glory or our own popularity, but because that is what makes the gospel look beautiful in a broken and fallen world. And so we pray for it together now today, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.